You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, and this week, the business of survival. Countries accounting for more than half of world GDP are in lockdown. The collapse in commerce is unprecedented. Can a historic deal among the world's biggest oil producers stabilise the market? I think that you will see a big increase in bankruptcies even with this deal. For those firms that manage to ride out the storm, what will the brave new business world look like? Before this, we called it building bionic companies, but I think that's going to be building bionic companies on steroids. And how to remake factories to get the world's production lines moving again. We're going to see probably five years worth of innovation in manufacturing in the next 18 months. First up, more than a month after the onset of a bitter price war, the world's biggest oil producers have agreed on a truce. I also spoke with the king of Saudi Arabia, and that was a very important call. And the bottom nine is OPEC plus. It's called OPEC plus because there are other states, also other nations. Uh, we came to a very good agreement. OPEC, led by Saudi Arabia, and its allies, led by Russia, say they will slash global oil supply by almost 10%, or 10 million barrels a day, the largest drop in history. On April 13th, President Trump suggested cuts could go even further. I think the number is going to be closer to 20, maybe 15, but closer to 20 than it is going to be to 10. But although this deal is historic, it may not be enough to stabilise the market for crude. As demand vanished with the spread of COVID-19, the price of oil had fallen by more than two-thirds to around $20 a barrel. There was huge pressure on the OPEC alliance to do something, and that's for two reasons. Charlotte Howard is our energy and commodities editor. Demand for oil had fallen by such an historic amount. People think that oil demand in April will drop by about 20 million barrels, which is about 20% of the world's supply. So there was really a need to do something to prop up the oil price. And then the other is that the United States, which has become the world's biggest crude producer, was very interested in helping American shale companies that were threatened by such a precipitous drop in the oil price. And President Trump has hailed this as something of a personal diplomatic achievement as well as a collective effort. What role has the United States played in getting this deal done? Well, the United States played an interesting role. Historically, low gasoline prices have been to the benefit of American consumers. And you saw even President Trump in early April talking about how low gas prices at the pump were good for Americans. But it seemed to dawn on him that actually America now has a huge oil industry that depends on higher prices, which has been supported in part by OPEC. And so he made a series of phone calls to Saudi Arabia, to Russia. There were American senators who were quite forthright in saying, look, Saudi Arabia, if you don't start limiting your production, you should recognize that our military aid and our forms of assistance may be jeopardized. So pressure came in a variety of forms. Okay, so a deal was done, but what will it actually achieve? Will it manage to support the price and will it manage to stabilize it? The interesting thing about the deal is that it is absolutely historic in size. It's nearly 10 million barrels a day production cut. But equally interesting is that its effect will be quite limited. And that's because the drop in oil demand has been so huge. 
and because it's not clear that countries that are part of this deal will comply with it. So even more notable than the size of the deal is its duration. Few people expected it to extend to April 2022, as that could support the oil price if demand picks up. But the trick is that historically, there has been a problem of compliance within the OPEC alliance. And so the real question is, going forward, you know, you have two scenarios. One is that this deal is ineffective in raising the oil price. And then all these producers who are restraining their own production think, why should I keep doing this? The oil price is low anyway. And then another scenario is that oil prices rise, but that in turn encourages companies that are outside the OPEC alliance and are not directly beholden to their governments, but rather to their shareholders, that they start increasing production. And then again, you have people within the OPEC deal saying, huh, this deal isn't working out so well for me. And so it is really a legitimate risk that yes, either countries or oil companies themselves not quite abiding by its terms. Now, our theme in this week's program is the business of survival. And Mr. Trump hailed the deal on Twitter by saying that it would save hundreds of thousands of American energy jobs. Is he right? This absolutely does throw a lifeline to American shale companies. If oil prices sank into the teens, tens, in some cases, perhaps even negative prices as producers are paying people to take their oil away, that would undoubtedly have been a huge knock to the knees of American shale, which already has been struggling. The question is, does this deal prevent the type of shakeout in the shale industry that many investors have anticipated for years anyway? So last year, the number of bankruptcies among American exploration and production companies rose by about 50%. That's before the COVID crisis. I think that you will see a big increase in bankruptcies even with this deal. It might not be the total obliteration that would have come in the absence of an OPEC agreement, but it's hard to imagine that America's shale fields are going to be booming this year. And what about in the longer term? What does this tell us about the shape of things to come for the industry? Of course, the industry, even in America, consists of a lot more than shale, doesn't it? You've got some very big companies as well as really quite small ones. What sort of oil industry do you think will come out of the other side of this crisis? It's hard to know, but I do think a few things become more likely because of COVID. Here you see a sudden shock to demand, and demand will recover somewhat. The question is whether it will recover on the trajectory that people expected before COVID. And also, this has really exposed the high-cost producers that are vulnerable in an environment of sinking demand or low oil prices, places that are expensive to pump oil, places that have poor governance, and so therefore might have more trouble attracting investment going forward. There are some high-cost projects that were being considered in Africa, in Nigeria, for instance. It looks very unlikely that those are going to go forward anytime soon. You'll see some higher-cost producers, some inefficient shale companies probably go out of business and their holdings be bought up by bigger, more efficient companies. And you will see, I think, this sort of continued instability within oil markets because the OPEC alliance is quite fragile, notwithstanding this big deal that was announced. OPEC alliance has not worked that well for either its two biggest members, for either Saudi Arabia or for Russia. Now you're going to have different producers around the world under strain as the oil price remains low. And so I think you're going to see investors' appetite will continue to diminish. And so it kicks off 
quite a period of uncertainty and strain among big oil companies and big oil producing governments. Does that mean that the balance of power in the oil industry is going to shift, but one might say shift at last, away from producers and towards consumers? In the 21st century, at some point, yes, I think that there's an expectation that that will happen. And what's interesting about this is that you start to see a glimpse of that happening already. You've seen companies taking steps prior to COVID to really shore up their relationship with oil customers in Asia, in particular China, because China is expected to be a source of growing oil demand in the coming decade and decade after that. And so you saw, interestingly, that happening on sort of a smaller immediate level as Saudi Arabia was selling deeply discounted barrels of oil to China in the midst of this price war. You start to see glimpses of how customers in future might increasingly dictate the terms to oil producers rather than the other way around. So the oil men shouldn't breathe a sigh of relief just yet then. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Thank you. And you can read more on how the pandemic is reshaping the oil industry in The Economist. If you're not yet a subscriber, go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Oil may have been the lifeblood of post-war capitalism, but today it's just one example of an industry in flux. The shock of the pandemic is ripping through the entire business world. Not all companies will survive. And for those that do, the way out will be precarious and they will have to master a very different environment. You know, it's been made clear that the virus itself is an indiscriminate danger for society. And one can see to a certain extent similarity in the business world. Henry Trix, our Schumpeter columnist, has been investigating what this brave new business world will look like. There are some uh, countries that have rolled out of this relatively quickly, China being an example, its draconian measures um, have uh, worked fairly well, it seems, in suppressing the virus. And so there are signs of a return to normality, although still many parts of the economy are, are operating below capacity and there are fears of a second wave coming. But um, it's also true in companies as well. So one of the people that I interviewed who had a really good overall sense of just how much the impact varies between the sectors is Rich Lesser. And he runs the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, a consultancy. And it works in 50 countries around the world, talking to chief executives and, and senior figures all the time. Where my concerns go first are for small businesses very thinly capitalized, the source of such a high percentage of jobs. If I then go to larger companies, certainly in travel and tourism, the the changes are striking overnight. In luxury and fashion, we see things in durables and large-scale purchases like automobiles in a number of industrial sectors that then feed the supply chains of those elements. The, The changes are quite dramatic. While on the other hand, Healthcare obviously is is playing a major role, though though even there, hospitals that aren't in the middle of the crisis are seeing dramatic declines in revenues while their costs go up to prepare for the crisis. But certainly the supply part of healthcare has stayed more stable. Consumer durables, retail that's geared more towards staples, 
those elements have stayed more stable. So what's striking for us and what we see across our client base is at the exact same time, you have sectors that feel nearly like they're being wiped out, at least in the short term, and sectors that are doing reasonably well. And Henry, is Rich Lesser's impression that we just heard there shared by the business owners you've been speaking to? Yes, Patrick, that's definitely the case. And you know, in few places is that contrast as clear as in food retail. Um, Richard Walker runs Iceland, a British supermarket specialising in frozen food. And he told us a bit about the experience of the last month. Well, normally as a business, we're developing marketing strategies uh, to try and sell as much food as possible to as many people as possible. The last couple of weeks has been the exact opposite. Never in my life did I think I'd be uh, clearly telling people to to please stop buying food. And really, it was a big challenge to our just-in-time supply chain, which uh, caught us off guard. We've transformed our business model, really. We've had to to pivot and adapt. And this has also been done to future-proof the the business, protecting all of the 25,000 colleagues that we employ. A significant example of this is our shift to focus to online. We've recruited thousands of new drivers, hundreds of new vans, and we've actually increased our online capacity by 250% almost overnight. So Henry, beyond the immediate shock, how do you see this crisis reshaping the business ecosystem in the longer term? Well, so Rich Lesser, the, the head of BCG, identified what he sees as four important trends emerging from this. Rewinning back consumer trust and engagement is going to be a big challenge. Second theme is around digital inside companies, the nature of work changing and how that changes in a digital context. Before this, we called it building bionic companies, but I think that's going to be building bionic companies on steroids as we come out of this period. The third is the emphasis on resilience. Everybody talks resilience all the time, but boy, is this whole situation highlighted the need for resilience. The first obvious place will be supply chains. It will affect balance sheets, but it will also challenge companies to be more adaptive. And then the final thing is this connectedness between government and business and between new ways of businesses engaging with their consumers. I think companies that understand what it means to be in a multi-stakeholder world at such an enormously challenging time, that find ways to be authentic and real and show commitment, that's going to take on a really heightened importance. And really mobilizing purpose will be a very big deal. Okay, Henry, let's start off where Rich Lesser left off. This relationship between governments and businesses and between businesses and consumers, uh, two sides to it. Let's start with this unprecedented intervention by the state. How do you think this is going to shape business in the future? Well, there's no doubt that companies need bailouts uh, from the government. But as you say, there are implications uh, that may be difficult to adjust to. We can see positive aspects to the relationship in the way that, for example, Big American firms like Ford and GM have discovered this incredible ability to innovate in a very short period of time and are making things like, um, you know, anything from masks to ventilators. But that relationship also can be pernicious. The fact that it's big companies um, that are in the strongest position here. And these big companies have very close relations via their lobbyists with 
um, government. So you see, for the, for example, the airlines pleading for special treatment um, in order to stay afloat, where they could actually benefit from more of a shakeout as a result of this. So there is that risk that governments will favour certain industries. It will decide that certain industries strategic, as it calls them. And that can be risky over the long term. And then there's the this other relationship on the on the other side between companies and their customers, and I suppose between companies and society more broadly. Rich Lesser spoke about purpose, the idea that companies have a social responsibility beyond making a profit that we saw becoming really very trendy in, in 2019. But how do you square all that talk about corporate purpose with a period in which you know millions are being laid off very quickly? Yes, it's an excellent question. And it's definitely a problem that business has to grapple with. Even if this is only a temporary dislocation, people are struggling to get by. So one can imagine that they look at their uh, at their company boards and, and hear that talk of purpose and think, well, that sounds a bit hollow. That said, there is also a sense that companies are appreciating that they do have to change their relationship with their workforce and with their customers. So, for example, in America, you're seeing a lot more companies furloughing employees, which means that they do go on to the unemployment roles. But there's also a, a promise there that they can come back to work as soon as things get better. And um, some companies, including, for example, Hilton Hotels, has even set up a kind of labour exchange in which it's encouraging its workers to go and work for the supermarkets and Amazon delivery company and other businesses that are hiring at the moment. You're also seeing executives taking deep pay cuts to try and, um, to a certain extent, show their workers that they too are sharing in the pain. Um, but it's very one-sided. And I think that this whole question of purpose will be debated well into the future. Is the responsibility of a company to look after its workers? Is it to survive? Is it to remunerate its shareholders? This is still a very, a very live and open debate. Before the pandemic struck, we were already witnessing a trend towards what we at The Economist have called slobalisation, uh, a reluctance to be quite so reliant on global supply chains. How do you see that trend developing from now on? The pandemic, it seems, is going to accelerate that uh, that slobalisation, if you can accelerate slobalisation. Um, first of all, it makes people realise the extent to which the global economy is dependent upon China. So the lockdown in China really dislocated global trade for a while. And even though some of that trade shifted to factories in Southeast Asia and and elsewhere, there was a realisation that many inputs, even into those Asian factories, came from China. And if those inputs inputs weren't there, then the supply chain wouldn't function. So, you know, the supply chain is only as strong as its weakest link, basically. So there is certainly more um, impetus now to think about diversifying supply chains and also bringing them closer to home. That trend is also accelerated by technology because there is 
uh, the ability to do a lot more of these supply chains using robotics, etc. So it, that shift is underway. Finally, there's a broader issue of, of trust, I suppose. So much will depend on consumer confidence. How quickly can that be rebuilt, do you think? Yes. I mean, this is the biggest question of all, I think, right now. And it's interesting to see in countries in, in Asia, like Singapore, for example, there is concern that even as they got through the first wave of the coronavirus, uh, there is a, um, a second wave emerging, which is forcing them to, again, rethink the opening of restaurants and bars and whatever. All this weighs on consumer confidence. The, the question of when we will get on planes again and travel overseas, would we f- run the risk of being locked down in a country that we got to? This will all affect consumer confidence for, for a long time ahead, for maybe the next year or more. How you get over that, this is a responsibility of companies in the long run, they need to convince us that we can do these things, whether that is by, you know, finding ways to test us so that we go back to work or finding ways to encourage us to fly and convincing us that we will be safe where wherever we are. That's going to be an inevitable part of a company's brand in the future. That's the next challenge there then. Henry Trix, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Patrick. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Over the last few months, China has repeatedly provided a window on the possible future for other countries facing and fighting the coronavirus. Now, China's factories are ahead of most of the rest of the world in going back to work. Despite a jump in reported cases in the country in recent days, most of China's factories are now back to operating at around 80% of capacity, and they offer a glimpse of the future of manufacturing. As well as masks, temperature checks and frequent deep cleans, many previously conservative companies are adopting new technologies and adapting existing ones to help get the world's production lines moving again. A lot of people have seen YouTube videos online of what like automotive assembly looks like and they see all these huge robots and they just imagine the whole rest of the process must look the same way. Uh, actually, that's the only part that's it's automated. Is that fifteen percent of the body shop line that you can see in those in those YouTube videos? Anna Katrina Shedletsky is the founder of Instrumental, a company with offices in California and Shenzhen that helps manufacturers find and fix production line problems remotely. There's a, a section of manufacturing that's still highly manual, and that's because in that sector and electronics is one of those verticals. 
there's a significant amount of innovation that's happening on a very rapid scale. So for example, there's new phones released every six months by a particular brand, um, or there's you know your new headphones or your new laptops. Like These products come out very quickly and they have these rapid cycles. And because they have these rapid cycles, you can't actually bring up a line surge to multiple lines to build enough volume and then bring it back down to back to nothing uh, with automation because it's just too capital intensive. So that is why most of your consumer electronic devices that you have and own were actually assembled by hundreds of pairs of human hands. So, Anna, now the urgent question is how you bring these vital people back to work safely. What kind of issues have you been seeing over the past few weeks? We've certainly seen our customers' capacity increase significantly, and I, I think um, China has done a great job of getting its its people back to work. And so what has then happened is that our customers elsewhere in the world, in Europe, North America, uh, are actually shut down now. And so free travel, which the manufacturing industry has relied on to be able to ship engineers around the world to the factories that need engineering support is not going to happen. This was kind of a major crutch that the development side, the development of new products had really relied on was being able to ship many engineers uh, as needed to these various locations. I was a product design engineer at Apple. I used to do this professionally. We would we would fly uh, to a factory, stand on lines for several weeks, 10 hours a day, trying to be in the right place at the right time to find issues during development so we could fix them before we, we built the product for customers. You'd watch operators do the job. You would identify things like, oh, if they assemble this part from left to right, like it causes a problem. Let's do it from right to left. So that's why you'd send those engineers. So that kind of hands-on ability to understand what's going on on the line. Um, And this is how the whole industry works. So if human involvement is so important in these processes, how do you engineer your way around that problem? So we're not going to be able to do that travel anymore. Um, and that's creating that's creating a gap. What Instrumental is helping to do is bridge that gap in this moment. It was always a feature of our product, um, but it was never like the, the reason our customers bought it. But now we're seeing in the last literally four weeks, a significant change in the conversation around the need for products that enable remote work, remote engineering into these manufacturing facilities. Essentially, we take images at key stages of assembly on the line. We then use AI algorithms to automatically identify defects in those images. And we'd also track defect rates. And then we would actually present that data in the context that engineers need to actually solve those problems so that they could they could make the changes they needed and actually fix the problem. You're obviously seeing a hugely increased demand for your kind of services at the moment. How do you think the current crisis is going to reshape manufacturing more permanently? The manufacturing industry is a pretty conservative industry. Um, And the reason it's a conservative industry is because there's a lot at stake. You make a mistake, it can be very expensive. And that's why it's ultimately a conservative industry. So it tends to adopt technology as much slower than many other industries. And and frankly, like while all of us have been doing our banking online and sending emails and video conferencing and all of that stuff, like the manufacturing industry still views like cloud data as like a novelty, as something that's like very new and cutting edge. However, the world has changed and In this world, there are new problems. There are new problems that finally kind of force the issue on data, which was an issue that 
the industry kind of kicked the can down the road on. Being able to get your data from anywhere in the world is now going to be a priority in manufacturing where it never was before. And because of that shift, we're going to see probably five years worth of innovation in manufacturing in the next 18 months. And then as a result, the industry, I think, is going to be incredibly transformed. And I think we're going to see significant efficiency increases and cost reductions, waste reductions. And that's good for everyone. A welcome note of optimism to finish on. Anna-Katrina Shedletsky, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Patrick Lane in London. This is The Economist. Economist.